What do you do when you've been an entrepreneur and have successfully built and sold two healthcare startups to 3M and Aetna? If you're John Dwyer, you advise the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease to help find a cure. And given John's track record of success, that sounds like a fantastic idea. The Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease, or CEOI, is an organization of private sector leaders who have joined together to provide business leadership in the fight against Alzheimer's. John Dwyer is playing a leading role within this organization. And John, thank you for sitting down on the Vital Health Podcast. It's been great to be here, Dwayne. Great to talk about what we care about over at CEOI and look forward to having a discussion with you this afternoon. You're something of a rarity. You are a successful serial entrepreneur. And when I say serial, that's with an S, not a C. (laughs) You've successfully built many companies since the age of 30, but yet today you're working with CEOI to help find a cure for Alzheimer's disease. What exactly is the CEOI? CEOI is a very interesting hybrid organization bringing together patient advocates and sponsors that are actively conducting research in therapeutics for Alzheimer's. And collectively, we're trying to find where uh, we can intervene to advance the discussion regulatorily, uh, scientifically, to facilitate and, if you will, lift all boats in terms of knocking down the obstacles uh, in Alzheimer's clinical research. But you also have an association with World Economic Forum, the WEF. And we do have a, a relationship with WEF, and that's through a collaboration called the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative. And it is in, focused on a more global approach, a broader research approach, in that it is looking at cohort development for longitudinal trials, Uh, looking at the epidemiology of the disease across the globe, as well as looking at clinical trials, which I'm the lead on that. Interesting. And then there's even, frankly, my view, even more novel endeavor is being undertaken by DAC, Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative, and CEOI, which is to try to engage with major health systems across the globe to really influence and invest in how they conduct clinical practice so that we're better diagnosing people with the disease and stratifying them for therapy in clinical practice or for treatment in clinical practice or for participation in clinical trials. We've got that going on in Florida, Mexico, Singapore, Indonesia, Africa so far. So it's a very unusual program looking at very different types of health systems in trying to look for a a methodology that will lift almost any kind of practice environment to better diagnose this disease, which is woefully inadequately diagnosed. How do you compare your experience running startups, which is cash intensive, you know, you need to be nimble, you need to react to the market, to running NGOs, which have a reputation of being somewhat like, you know, trying to steer the Queen Mary with a boat oar. How how do you compare the two, John? (laughs) I think that the single most important thing we've done as a enterprise strategy is we're very intentional and very KPI driven. So we, whether we're an NGO, not-for-profit, for-profit, we're trying to figure out what makes a big difference and hold ourselves accountable for hitting endpoints that actually achieve that 
KPI, then we measure did we have the consequence expected uh, and repeat or alter to get the effect. And we've done that with real positive success and yet also with the right humility that we need a lot more work and a lot more money to get scale so we really get global change. Do you think that the attitude around NGOs is changing? Are they becoming more outcomes-minded? Do they need to, I guess, is the question. Do they need to evolve? Well, we think they do. I think that there are very telling examples that Gabi, if you're familiar with that, that's the vaccine collective uh, that has had great results, was instrumental during COVID and before that SARS and making big contributions. But, you know, they come in all flavors. And ours is driven by my colleagues and, and friends, George Radenberg and Drew Holzaffel, and those boards. We have separate boards across all of them. Within the portfolio of activity they've signed up for, not to miss goals. Cadence is very important, we think. And I think that's our biggest differentiator is when we say we're going to do a thing, we're going to do that thing, or we'll report out why we didn't get it done. Yeah. But we don't swallow the whistle and say nobody really knows what happened to initiatives. That's not how we roll. You've been a senior director. George Vradenberg was a senior at Fox and NBC and several networks at a very high level. That experience obviously carries through to how you're trying to manage and run these organizations. And Drew Holzaffel was at Pfizer sure. and Wyatt, and, uh, and he is uh, also a model of intentionality. It goes throughout our leadership team were all from uh, prior experiences where uh, you had to explain to your team and to your boards what did you do with the money and when did you do it right and I think it's a work ethos that really helps patients get better results out of the health systems and research systems well it's an attitude that's more associated with biotech or innovative companies where cash burn is is king you know that's the problem very few people have an infinite amount of resources and our capital is just as precious as it is for a biotech part of the reason we became acquainted was our work on behalf of biogen doing their economic impact assessment related to what was at the time a provisional assessment by CMS that unfortunately became a hard reality regarding their coverage decision, where they decided that anybody entering an Alzheimer's trial with an amyloid plaque monoclonal antibody would be required to do extended clinical trials beyond the point of FDA approval. Why do you think they chose this specific time and this specific asset to do this guidance? I mean, they tried before with CAR-T, but this time it's stuck. Why? There were several motivations that came together. Back in the CAR-T NCD that you are familiar with, there was a really important difference between that and the Agile candidacy. There was, in fact, a post-market FDA-sanctioned post-approval evidence-gathering initiative that was part of their approval. At that time, Medicare got comfortable that whatever safety concerns they had for the off-label CAR-T would be satisfied by that particular requirement. Mm-hmm. That was absent in Agile. Agile got a clean label, no black, uh, got no black box label, got no... Um, uh, well, there was a, re- a mandatory register for 15 years. They had to run a registry for 15 years yeah, on the CAR-T therapeutics. Uh, right, but there's a term for that. But anyhow, you're, you've captured it. There was no post-approval uh, mandatory registry. By the way, Biogen 
volunteered to run a registry. It was called iCare. But there was another big difference, and that is that a monoclonal antibody targeting a beta amyloid plaque for patients diagnosed with Alzheimer's has an addressable market of about 1.2 million Medicare beneficiaries. That's just a fact. There are a lot of us that are sick with Alzheimer's. It is the size of the medical community of patients that we're going to be potentially receiving the drug that caused them to reconsider how they were going to go about covering the drug. I strongly believe that. Dwayne, up until that NCD was brought forward, Medicare had never not covered to label. Right. Even the CAR-T was an uh, off-label use question. Correct. Our data shows in the last 10 years, there were over 70 of those drugs. And price was not an issue. Let's be clear. There were drugs that were over a million dollars each in that list. And Adjahelm was actually ninth from the bottom of those 70. It's the volume of patients that were involved that caused them to say, we need to have a clearer understanding of the clinical benefit never before raised it that way. And then they did the other unprecedented thing. They applied it to the whole class. Right. And it is that action that your listeners need to understand. Nobody's really focused on it. We got letters from senators saying to CMS, do not cover the whole class. Evaluate every drug one by one. The fact they covered the whole class has persuaded me that it was cost because every one of those drugs is targeting that 1.2 million. Absolutely. And that's what makes me think that they created a brand new legal mechanism. Maybe it's lawful, maybe it's not. I'm not a judge. I think there are real questions as to whether they had the authority to do it. But until somebody else decides differently, that's the authority as it stands. And I think it's not only really bad for Alzheimer's patients, but I think it's really bad for any of the graduates of an accelerated approval because they are now exposed to going through the same analysis. One of the things I pointed out is, look, if this stands the way it is without some sort of congressional overrule on this or some sort of legislation, this is going to get pulled because the numbers just don't add up. There's no way this makes economic sense if you have to delay another three or four years. You'd already spent five years and we estimated you know, $100,000 a patient per year. So you're talking a couple billion by the time you get done with that Correct. clinical trial. Now, Lily's swimming in the same water. Do you think they continue registration, John? I and mean, what do you think with the tea leaves here? Yes. Yes? I think the important point you make is at some point the numbers deter people from moving forward with drug development. Yes. I think the companies you've mentioned, ASI, Lilly, and Roche, have so much invested, they're so close, and candidly, I believe that they believe if they show a more well-organized package, because there's no question the Biogen data was not traditional, very confusing, real questions were rightfully asked, that they're going to prevail. I think that that is not a answer that is supported entirely by CMS's behavior to date. I also think that irrespective of what your politics are, the House is probably going to turn Republican. I think that the legislative solution uh, may come forward, that there's going to be a rebalancing of this disequilibrium legislatively, but I'm not sure. 
but I think there'll be more leverage and pressure brought to, on Medicare to revisit this really uninformed decision and take drugs one at a time. And what the decision does is it essentially puts CMS at odds with an FDA decision, as you pointed out. This has never been done before. It's never happened. And so now we have two parts of HHS, Health and Human Services, that are sort of not agreeing. There's no sort of. They aren't. Yeah, they aren't. Why do you think the current administration hasn't knocked heads or done something to try and square the circle a bit? Why is it just letting it ride? Well, there's no doubt many of us are disappointed, and I'm a lifelong Democrat. Last time I voted for Republican, it was the primary between Jerry Ford and Reagan. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So last time I voted was, for... That was that, because there were 76 and 80. Right. Ran in both no, that, yeah, so it was absolutely, it was 76. Interesting. And Jerry Ford won the 76 Republican nomination, but I, I crossed over to the Republican primary and voted for Jerry Ford because I did not want Ronald Reagan. And then, of course, in 80, he did get the nod and he beat uh, Jimmy Carter handily. With that way of background, in terms of my profound democratic roots, I think that you've got a few things since the beginning of the year have distracted the president. Uh, They aren't trivial. Inflation, the COVID uh, epidemic, then Ukraine. And so he had to rely on his team, particularly uh, Secretary Becerra, to frankly go down there and get his conflicting agencies in harmony. And he was appointed and approved by the Senate early in the first quarter of this year. And frankly, the Washington perspective is Secretary Becerra is not paying attention to the agency the way others have in the past. And it shows this is a function of dysfunction. And that's not a good outcome. But ultimately, do you think the administration sees this as the right result then, that they want more price controls coming out of CMS, regardless of what FDA is doing? I mean, would they rather have FDA be less open to these indications? I think they're uncomfortable with the disequilibrium that is clearly present between the FDA and CMS. I think that the new head of the FDA has demonstrated that he's going to try and right the ship, but the administrator of CMS has had a huge win, and she really ran the table. And I don't see her unilaterally ceding the territory she's won back. So I think it's going to take a number of factors to influence it, and I don't think it's going to be quick. Well, Robert Califf, obviously a well-known clinical trialist out of Duke University, uh, the Duke Margolis Center, one of the most well-respected clinical trial research bodies in, in the world. One would think he has a tremendous amount of expertise in this space. One would hope that there would be an opportunity to find sanity here. <laughs> so, you know, Califf has said that when it came to accelerated approval, he's still a fan. He'd like to see a little bit more rigor. And Alzheimer's would still be an indication that falls well within his publicly stated point of view around accelerated approval. By the way, many other, uh, as you point out in your great data, rare diseases and other uh, diseases of unique life-threatening nature would be still well within the, his worldview of accelerated approval. What's so disconcerting about the NCD is CMS 
affirmatively says in black and white, reasonable and necessary gives us both the obligation and the authority to come out with a different decision than the FDA for Medicare beneficiaries. Yeah. Until Califf and the administrator can get together and honestly, I've been in Washington a long time. What's her motivation to give it back? You know, it's a natural break on utilization. Those that question whether these new drugs do have all the clinical benefit that is being ascribed to them, it gives her the ability to say, we're going to have some time to measure that. There are lots of interesting rationale, maybe pretexts, for why they advanced that position, but she's got it now. And in the absence of a judge saying it was wrong or legislation saying it has to change, I don't see it changing. I think there was a common perception that Biogen would probably take it to court, and a lot of people were sitting on their heels waiting to see if they would do a lawsuit. But it would appear that's not going to be forthcoming now. I think I would broaden that observation to say that there are a lot of people, myself included, that think it is incumbent upon pharma and bio to bring that lawsuit, and that that lawsuit needs to represent the class, not a single drug. And I think that's all I, as a lawyer, feel comfortable saying. I think there are very good legal arguments that I think CMS would be uncomfortable having to litigate if they got into court, but nobody's even raised the specter of a legal challenge. Is it because you think that it was so controversial that they're just it's a third rail? Did it become a third rail because of the pathway? The fact that they tried a phase three, obviously they thought they had good data, right? and it didn't pan out. And then they went back to the accelerator. Is it just too, is it too much? Is it too high? I think there were errors made, real or, or optical, by the agency. And I'm a big fan of the FDA. Put it in the podcast. I think, <laughs> doesn't I, get cut, John. Doesn't, doesn't get, get cut. cut. <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of Billy Dunn. But if you look at the sequence of events for how that approval occurred, accelerated approval was not before the advisory committee. Yeah. It's an advisory committee. It's not called a mandatory committee. Right. The law doesn't require the agency to uh, comply with the recommendation of an advisory committee. But the fact they didn't even tee it up in front of the advisory committee then allowed the scientists that were against the whole data set to just further to, you know, rail that this is out of control and not appropriate. I mean, that was a mistake. Secondly, everybody knows Biogen wishes they could take back the stoppage, which just completely put their data in a cocked hat from a traditional analysis point of view. They know that. I'm just going to go on the record here. I think the Biogen's an incredibly ethical, incredibly disciplined and rigorous company. I think Samantha Budd is going to go down in the annals of the disease as a tireless leader and someone who's devoted more of her life than maybe we deserved to get this drug across the goal line. I don't think the drug's dead. Yeah. But it is in a bad place. So to answer your question succinctly, it is not the poster child drug you want to take to litigation right. in the face of some of those folks. My own view is uh, it's a close question about whether you sit around waiting to bring litigation and let Medicare sit back and breathe easy or whether you put them back into the public eye in a transparent way and have them explain why they did what they did, what is their authority for it, what are the consequences. We were, you and I were in a room full of people today Absolutely. with 
cancer drugs, rare diseases like Duchenne's, uh, and uh, muscular dystrophy, HIV drugs, and all of them have a pall cast over them by this decision. Absolutely. And one of the other things that I find troubling, as someone who lives in Belgium and has spent a tremendous amount of time fighting uh, the system there, we've seen the evidence of what's happened when you arbitrarily cram down price. You totally destroy the innovation ecosystem. Late-stage biotech is screaming out of Europe as fast as it can get out, as humanly possible. CMS now is behaving... Well, George Vradenberg says like a bad insurer. I, I see it as it also acts in some levels like a bad HTA. It's sort of acting like a health technology assessor after the regulatory approval. Now, we don't have an HTA process. In fact, qualities have been determined to be discriminatory in the United States legally. But yet, here we are. Where we are today, where we essentially have a I proxy. uses qualities like, you know, you and I, our morning cereal. Yeah. And so that's Is that with a C or an S? Yeah. That one's with a C. Okay, thanks, John. Uh, The ICER methodologies are clearly paid for by the plans. And so you get results consistent with the folks that bought your wine. You sing their song. Yeah. Now, I also think they do some good work. But let me just say this, Dwayne. You've already discussed it. But this lack of harmonization between the agencies is uh, unprecedented in this country and destroys innovation and delays drugs getting to patients. That's the most important thing. And I will be sanguine about any solution that has a reconciliation of that between us, uh, even though I'm sure it will be imperfect for those of us that believe drugs should be administered by doctors uh, post an FDA approval uh, and left to the doctor and their patient to decide whether it's good for them. So we have a pall being cast from CMS. NASDAQ was down 5%. Here we are at bio, 13,000 people, most of them small biotechs. What's going to happen now from the standpoint of equity markets? You, again, successfully ran two companies to acquisition. Salute, chapeau. Very hard to do, John. I have a tremendous amount of respect for that. There's a lot of smart entrepreneurs here who are being caught up in this maelstrom now of a double-fisted problem. You're getting hammered with left hooks from CMS, and you're getting uppercuts from the equity markets. What happens now if you're a small biotech? Well, I'm going to say something that's not entirely um, a source of comfort to the biotech companies. They've got to, and we heard that yesterday from a couple different panels with really good VCs on them. They've got to pull in, tighten their belt. They've got to run their businesses a lot more rigorously. They've got to stick to their core business that was the reason people invested in them to begin with. Uh, That is going to mean the difficult task of laying some people off in certain cases. But good companies will survive this. And there's a trillion dollars, Dwayne, of unallocated capital in this country alone for biotechs. Valuations are going to be different, but good companies can find money. Pfizer's sitting on cash that's losing value at 10% a year right now. I think they go shopping. Well, I think anybody who uh, looks at Pfizer, Pfizer's just a financial genius in a pharma suit. Yeah. And so they're going to look for assets and businesses that uh, they can buy at a very attractive price and go market the hell out of what they've got and then finish developing what they don't have an, uh, an approval for. And I think personally, 
I don't know anything, but there's some very nice neuroassets. Absolutely. That they've been out of that business, and now after, if there's an approval with the Alzheimer's drugs coming through, the ALS drug coming through, the psychosis drug that's coming through, I think Pfizer says the FDA is a good place to bring neurology drugs, and they're going to go shopping. I'd like to change tack a little bit here for you. One of the companies you successfully exited in was a company called Emedex, which became the leading provider of population health management services, data company, excellent company. Long, long time ago. Long time yeah. ago, but yeah. I mean, obviously, you were into health data before there was health data, John. I mean, you're one Different of the... Different kind, right? Yeah, but you're one of the pioneers, okay? Are you surprised at how bad public health was during COVID, the, the lack of data rigor that we just went through? Here we have all these data assets, and everyone's talking about AI this and data that, and yet decisions were being made that had no absolute bearing in actual data science at all. I think that we are, the private sector and the public sector would be remiss if they didn't admit they've never adequately invested in their IT infrastructure. When I had my IT company, uh, one of the running jokes was banking and finance uh, industry laps the healthcare industry uh, every 10 years, minimum every 10 years. And in some periods of time, it was less than five. So we can get a mortgage done in 90 minutes and uh, we can't even pull your clinical data together from the very different physicians and hospitals you work with over the course of your life getting treatment. If I'm in Germany, it might even be faxed. But you can get it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's and, true. Yeah. And, okay, fair and the much maligned, by the way, there are examples even in this country, the much maligned Veterans Administration, sometimes rightfully maligned, any vet can get all their data. It's called the Blue Button Program. They can get it, and they get it in a flat ASCII file. Their entire history is available. Nobody remembers all that stuff, right? That's interesting. You know, you're a financial guy. So am I. Where are the financial incentives for us to bring that together? Now, Oracle said something very interesting just this week. What do we have to do to get one single reporting system for uh, health data? And they just bought Cerner, which is one of the two (laughs) biggest shops with penetration of the hospital systems and EMR system for the private sector docs. And they have the new VA contract. So Oracle could be a precursor to something very interesting. We'll have to see. Americans aren't really super enthusiastic, though, about a single healthcare system data process. Yeah. We're suspicious of that. <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure that I think that it is necessarily a good idea that there's only one. But interoperability yeah. is criminal not to have interoperability. You and I, unfortunately or fortunately, how we look at it, spend a lot of time on the Hill in Washington, D.C. Yeah. I'm not a lobbyist, but we're brought in to sort of educate yeah, educate, and tell some hard truths occasionally. A lot of people are not always very fond of that, but that's my job. Right. <laughs> but what we're hearing is, well, if we get less drugs, it doesn't matter. We've got enough. And we're actually hearing very senior people on the Hill say that. How do you respond to that when someone on the Hill says that, Chuck? So I think you and I, this might be one of the few places we disagree. Okay. We go every year to Lausanne. Uh, CEOI does. And we bring together the European regulators, the European payers, and there's a woman, wonderful woman, I can't remember her name, but I can tell you she's from Norway. She's a payer from Norway. 
she's very forthright. And she says, I, I get a fixed sum of money. Right. And I have to pay for everybody in Norway's medical care. So if you come to me with a fancy drug that is priced at a very high price and the trade-off is I'm not providing basic dental care to my citizens as often as I used to, I'm going with basic dental care. And for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is the uncertainty around whether the purported benefit of that drug is true and the proven benefit of good dental disease prevention. Those are real-world trade-offs and right. can't be ignored. People in Europe don't die at a disproportionate rate compared to the United States. This is the one thing the pharma industry has to deal with is our high prices and the mortality rate between those countries that do get these drugs and the mortality rates with the people that don't get those drugs. And there's a lot of stuff in between uh, those results. But just looking at it, you can't say great new therapies lead to better population outcomes. And that's a really important question that we need to get more rigorous about. Then I think pricing could go up in Europe someday if those rigors were in place. And pricing in this country is an issue. It is true, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that insulin is too expensive in this country. Absolutely. You cannot justify these prices. They are my friends. The manufacturers of insulin, you can keep this on the podcast, the manufacturers of insulin, each and every one of them I work with, have enormous respect for. But you can't look at the year-over-year increases in that price in a drug that is seeing a year-over-year increase in utilization and is not likely to go off. And that those numbers are in unexplainable to me. And the human suffering being generated by people deciding, do I pay rent? Do I buy food or do I get my insulin is a conundrum we should not ask of our country. I don't see that being resolved as we talk about everything else we're talking about. I think when you go to the Hill, it is that example and others like it, Dwayne, that when we advocate for a new drug, they're politely saying, yeah, but what the hell are we doing about? There's a study just came out. I know you know it that they saw a year over year increase in prices of 20 percent year over year in mature but not off-patent drugs. That is way above inflation on a compounded basis of 5x. That is difficult to absorb when we know the fixed cost and development cost of those drugs has been largely returned back to the investor. I just think that we can't look at this as binary. And we don't allow ourselves a holistic discussion around these elements. So I'm hugely in the let's get new therapies out there. But I'm also in the let's get value and pricing uh, aligned and then get the volume. People can't afford these new therapies. They're not going to buy at a copay if it's $30,000 a year and a Medicare beneficiary has to pay 6000 That's a new car. Yeah. Or it used to use car, definitely. At least, at least a used car. There's a lot there to unpack, and there's a lot I want to talk about there. I'll start with the insulin. What's really interesting about that insulin example, when we did our HR3 analysis, we did a deep dive of forensic edit on all the 10K forms, which we do. So we went back and looked at those companies' balance sheets and actually looked at the SEC reports. And so we did all the calculations on, you know, okay, there's the numbers there. And then we went to the Medicare reports, and Medicare is just 
Medicare. No, obviously there's a heck of a lot more people on insulin than just Medicare. Right. Medicare is just a slice of that because Medicare, you know, diabetes goes to kids. It goes all the way up and down. Uh, it's, you know, goes across the whole population. Yep. Right. So what was interesting, we looked at Medicare and the spending was 4.2, 4.3 billion in Medicare list price. And then we looked at the same balance sheets of the companies and we're about 1.92 billion in listed revenue on the balance sheets for the entire U.S., not just Medicare. There's $2.2 billion that's completely vanished in sales here. <laughs> Where did it go? Right. And this is the problem. So when we're talking price on Medicare, there's obviously something going on with the PBMs in that relationship. And what was fascinating is the companies that had the biggest spread from what they sold in Medicare and what they listed in their balance sheet had the highest volume, but also the biggest spread. It looks like there's a negotiation going on there that whoever offers the biggest sweetheart kickbacks and quote-unquote reimbursements to the PBMs, which in radio, when I was working in radio, we called payola and was illegal, but for some reason now this is considered legitimate. There seems to be something there that there's a lot of money going missing there that is probably getting parked with the PBMs. So I agree with that. There's a lot going on in the middle. And every, it genuinely is spaghetti. For every supply chain you track, there's another one that's different. But you're absolutely right. But you said, well, you go on the hill and you're worried by this reaction you're getting on the hill. Yeah, but that's why. I hear you. From the patient's point of view, they don't know if it was the PBM or the DOC or the hospital cooperative or the, uh, the federal health center. They don't know who's getting the additional margin. All they know is they can't afford it. But the problem is the pharmaceutical company ends up playing snidely whiplash tying the woman to the tracks in so, that case. So, and I think, <laughs> you know, if I agree that they take a large bit of the brunt, but we cannot. This I just have a lot of intellectual problem with sustaining. They're very smart. They're very capable. Pharma and biotech, if they didn't like those folks between them and the patients. They wouldn't have them. As just real-world free economics. What do you think is going to happen with some of the PBM reforms, Dom? Because they were just dragged in front of the hill and given a good old-fashioned lashing. What do you think is going to happen there? Why do pharma and biotechs still sustain the PBM middleman? They can, you know, they can stop paying them. The contracts, you know, if you can't get your preferred insulin, those contracts, the portfolio of drugs that PBMs process is a very interesting higher order mathematical process beyond my ken anymore but if it wasn't in pharma's enlightened self-interest to work with pbms they wouldn't work with pbms yeah and so you know i'm a free market guy Dwayne. i'm just saying if i'm the hill and i am on the hill or if i'm a patient i don't know who's screwing us but the price is what the price is and it feels the same whomever it is that's getting their cut. I really think reform only comes if we openly and honestly accept that there are good business reasons these relationships and arrangements exist. And then if the government doesn't like those, they should be allowed not to buy from supply chains that uh, embed that kind of accumulated cost. And some of the impact you're talking about, again, the someone from Norway, your example from Norway and your Luzon meeting. 
completely agree that Europe has a very good level of basic care. Don't look at the cancer treatments and don't look at the cancer outcomes and don't look at some of the orphan drug outcomes, particularly in Eastern Europe because they're very bad. But yeah, in general, as long as you're healthy, that's fine. I, what I've always wanted to do is take an experiment of 10,000 people from Wisconsin and put them in Lyon, yeah. France, and then take the 10,000 people. Oh, they'd eat better. <laughs> exactly. You know, and then take the 10,000 people from Lyon and give them some deep fried cheese curds right. and God knows what and Doritos and see how they handle the healthcare system. Right. My guess is the healthcare system in Lyon would suddenly see a jump in pricing. That's that's my point. <laughs> I, I think that's fair. Yeah. I think smoking in Europe is still higher. So they're, you know, so they're weathering some bad behaviors over there too. The actuaries for Medicare Trust yeah. has said we're going out of money. Yeah. We're very quickly approaching the European model where maybe Agilehelm was the, the first straw to the break. The straw to break the back, yeah. But I think we're very quickly, unless we're willing to increase the Medicare tax, and I'm not sure that that's a layup, I think we're very quickly going to start rationing care because the system is not going to have enough money to just put up with the inevitable increase year over year of spend. And that is a sobering observation. But it, for us, for those of us that want better therapies, better quality of life, that dynamic alone changes everything because commercial will follow Medicare. Absolutely. So, John, here we are. We're at Bile. Um, we've had a great conference, actually. It's nice to see people again, frankly. It's been wonderful. Good energy. Fantastic. And despite the bear market, I see more optimism and more enthusiasm for their science. And 72 degrees in San Diego is not bad. Oh, <laughs> man. I know. It's crazy. What I do wrong to not live here? Let's say you and I sit down here 12 months from now. We get back together, have a coffee here, have a good chat at the podcast booth. Yeah. Where do you think we are, John? What do you think's happened? Uh, a year from now, we have a Republican House, maybe a Republican Senate. Both of those things will be good for the industry. We will have a president who will be, not since Jimmy Carter, the most challenged incumbent in the history of the Democratic Party. I am sanguine about that, but I think that for the industry, the ability to conduct business in a productive way will be better than it was this last year. I don't know how much better, but it will be better. Uh, as far as the bear market, I think we've got a year. Yeah, I do too. And so it's going to be a year before we start to see the uptick. And remember, these things, as you well know, for contemporaries, are more optics and psychology than financial reality. And so the people with capital will use this to their enlightened self-interest. I don't blame them. Uh, they paid up when the market was red hot and companies were getting great valuations. Now they're not going to get great valuations. Yeah. And we got to manage to that. But if there is good science that's going to help patients, investors and management and scientists will come together to get those scientific and clinical technologies across the goal line. I think marginal, well, I've seen a year where more unproven theories, where marginal or me too endeavors don't do well because for all the reasons that normally happens. Well, John, I can honestly say, despite some very difficult projects and some bad outcomes around the CMS decision, 
one of the great pleasures has been getting a chance to collaborate with you on this accelerated approval project and getting a chance to meet you. It's been wonderful talking to you today. And Dwayne, it's been great to work with you. And thank you again for your study. And, you know, I hope you guys at Vital Transformation will, you know, dig into, you know, there's a rich middle ground here, Dwayne, where your discipline and the financial and analytical work you do could really add to the discussion. The supply chain question is not unfathomable. No. But I think if we're going to really make good changes for patients, and at the end of the day, that is what we care about. Absolutely. Digging into why the current process is a function of a time gone by. There's a lot of costs that can be driven out of this system, and I think that those costs driven out will provide more resources with payers to invest in infrastructure and technologies and and drugs that will help us all. And I hope you do that. I hope you look for those assignments. Thank you, John. We we may do that. I might take you up on that. All the best, sir. Thank Thank you. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Scholtes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.